turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Dave King engineering. Today we'll have a conversation with Nathan Nelson. He's the pastor of mission and outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle, Washington. We'll talk about best practices for churches uh, sponsoring long-term mission trips, particularly uh, in support of vulnerable children around the world. And we'll talk with Elise Gallus. She's the program manager for Together PDX. She's also a member of the Palau team. We'll talk about the upcoming night of worship and other aspects of this ministry that brings the church, the body of Christ, together. Not just during this summer season, not just on Sunday evening at 4 o'clock for a night of worship, but throughout the year. More on that coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, the big news headline today was the IRS whistleblower's testimony at the House Oversight Committee that they um, saying that they witnessed an undeniable pattern of preferential treatment for the Bidens and the obstruction of the normal investigative process throughout the years long federal investigation into Hunter Biden. The whistleblower Gary Shapley, who served as the supervisor on the investigation at the IRS and the second uh, formerly anonymous whistleblower brought similar accusations. They offer testimony to the House Oversight Committee that started at 1 p.m. Eastern time earlier today. The anonymous whistleblower who previously testified before the House Ways and Means Committee last month revealed his identified uh, identity rather as a 13 year special agent within the IRS criminal investigation division and as a gay Democrat married to a man. The whistleblowers have alleged officials at the Justice Department, FBI and Internal Revenue Service interfered in the investigation into Hunter Biden and said decisions in the case seem to be influenced by politics. They also alleged federal prosecutors blocked lines of questioning related to President President Biden and said the U.S. attorney in charge of the probe, David Weiss, didn't have full authority to bring charges. The whistleblower, according to his prepared testimony, said that Hunter Biden should uh, should have been charged with a tax felony and not only the tax misdemeanor charge and that communications and text messages uh, reviewed by investigators may be a contradiction to what President Biden was saying about not being involved in Hunter's overseas business dealings. He also testified on several instances in which prosecutors didn't follow the ordinary process, slow walk the investigation and put in place unnecessary approvals and roadblocks from effectively and efficiently investigating the case, including prosecutors blocking questioning and interviewing of Hunter Biden's adult children. The whistleblower is also asked um, Congress and the Biden administration to consider a special counsel for the Hunter Biden investigation and all the related cases and spinoff investigations that have come forward from this investigation. Related cases that I believe are subject to the same problems and difficulties we had, the whistleblower said, adding that Congress should consider establishing an official channel for federal investigators to pull the emergency cord and raise the issues of the appointment of a special counsel for consideration by your senior officials, end quote.
Meanwhile, Shapley, who has participated in multiple media interviews since the House Ways and Means Committee released its transcribed interviews last month, testified that prosecutors had decided to conceal some evidence from the investigators that they found on Hunter Biden's laptop. Shapley has also uh, said that uh, Delaware's U.S. Attorney's Office slow walks steps like conducting interviews, serving document requests and pursuing physical search warrants in California, Virginia and Delaware until after the 2020 presidential election. The warrants were ready as uh, uh, early as April of 2020, but the Delaware U.S. Uh, Attorney's Office uh, pushed them off um, until after the November election and then never pursued them, Shapley went on to say. After an electronic search warrant on Hunter Biden's Apple iCloud account led us to WhatsApp messages with several SEFC China Energy executives where he uh, claimed to be sitting and discussing business with his father, Joe Biden. We sought permission to follow up on the information in the messages, Shapley said. Prosecutors would not allow it. Uh, Shapley again testified that a search warrant for the guest house at the Biden's Delaware residence was being planned. But despite agreeing there was probable cause, Assistant U.S. Attorney Leslie Wolf cited the optics of executing a search warrant at President Biden's residence as the deciding factor for not allowing it to be completed. This was the decision, even though she admitted there would be evidence at that location that would further the investigation. Shapley said Assistant U.S. Attorney Wolf also told investigators they should not ask about President Biden during witness interviews, even when the business communications of his son clearly referenced him. Well, Shapley said his red line in coming forward was when U.S. Attorney for Delaware David Weiss said he was not the deciding person on whether charges are filed. I had seen an undeniable pattern of preferential treatment and obstruction of the normal investigative process, Shapley said, and added that Weiss allowed the statute of limitations to expire for tax charges against Hunter Biden from 2014 and 2015 in D.C. Well, their testimony came as the committee, led by Chairman James Comer, investigates the Biden family's business dealings. Since assuming our Republican majority in January, the House Oversight and Accountability Committee had made historically fast progress in our investigation into the Biden family's influence peddling scheme, Comer said in his opening statement. He laid out the committee's findings in just six months, including astonishing financial records, as he put it. What were the Bidens selling? Nothing but influence and access to the Biden network. Comer went on to say this is an influence peddling scheme to enrich the Bidens, end quote. Comer stressed the importance of whether Joe Biden is uh, compromised by these schemes and if our national security is threatened. He touted the brave and credible whistleblowers and acknowledged that they have risked their careers to come forward and provide important important testimony. The testimony about the department's justice, FBI and IRS investigation of Hunter Biden confirms the committee's findings. Comer went on to say that there is nothing normal about the Biden family's business activities. Well, not surprising, the uh, Democrats took issue with the characterization made by the Republicans, some going so far as to suggest it wasn't an issue worth investigating at all. Others pointing out that uh, perhaps they should look at Schemes during the previous administration and still others suggesting there are issues of greater importance involving minority communities. And this did not merit the time and attention the committee was giving it. In any event, this is not the end. It will uh, likely move forward if whether or not there'll be further uh, investigation, further testimony, um, grand, uh, not a grand jury, but a a further investigation by another body remains to be seen. And we'll follow the story 
if and as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A reminder, coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Nathan Nelson. He's the pastor of Mission and Outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle. He's uh, going to join us to talk about best practices when serving in long-term or rather short-term missions for um, uh, vulnerable children around the world and in your own neighborhood. We'll also talk with um, Elise Gallus, Program Manager for Together PDX. She's also a member of the Palau team. We'll be talking about the uh, culmination of what has been an incredible summer of service and prayer with worship this Sunday, 4 o'clock at Waterfront Park, to which you are invited. By the way, 3 o'clock, they've got some games and stuff going on. Uh, as uh, people are gathering. So you might want to take that into account. You can learn everything you need to know about it at togetherpdx.org slash 2023. If you don't want to wait for our conversation later in the second hour. Well, President Biden faces heat over international tensions as Israel presidents addressed Congress today prior to Israel's ceremonial presidential president Isaac Herzog's speech to Congress this morning. And in the face of mounting pressure from Republicans to invite Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel to the U.S. for a meeting, President Biden on Monday reached out to the Israeli leader to solidify a get together this year. Herzog, who will deliver and did his congressional address as part of Israel celebrating the rebirth of its country 75 years ago, told Biden on Tuesday, I was pleased to hear about your conversation with Prime Minister Netanyahu, which focused on our ironclad military and security cooperation, because there are some enemies of ours that sometimes mistake the fact that we may have some differences as impacting our unbreakable bond. I truly believe that if they uh, knew how much our cooperation has grown in recent years and achieved new heights, they would not think that way. Uh, The President Biden told Herzog that he conveyed to Netanyahu that America's commitment to Israel is firm and it is ironclad. Michigan's attorney general has filed felony charges against 16 Republicans, including the head of the party's state chapter, with acting as false electors for then-President Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Democrat Attorney General Dana Nessel said yesterday that all 16 people would face eight criminal charges, including forgery and conspiracy to commit election forgery, which range from a potential 5 to 14 years in prison each. Patriotic online marketplace Public SQ is thriving as more American consumers seek out products and services offered by non-woke companies. And now the conservative alternative to Amazon will soon be owned by We the People. The platform, which touts itself as being pro-life, pro-family and pro-freedom, will merge on Wednesday with the Columbier Acquisition Corporation in a special purpose acquisition company, SPAC, and a deal and will become a public company trading under a ticker symbol PSQH on the New York Stock Exchange. Thursday, when the company officials will ring the opening bell, Public SQ CEO Michael Seifert founded the company in January of 21. And the idea of the company started when he started a list of businesses he and his wife felt proud to support because they uh, the company's values aligned with their own. After sharing the list with friends, they decided to put it into a digital environment and allow other businesses to be added. And the site exploded in popularity with consumers and businesses alike. Public SQ now has over 1.1 million consumer members active on its platform and more than 55,000 businesses, 90 percent of which are small businesses. Account uh, Accounts are free for both buyers and sellers. Public SQ. 
California Governor Gavin Newsom's major proposal to overhaul his state's mental health system would strip over $700 million from annual services provided by county governments and reallocate some of that money toward housing the homeless, according to a new assessment by the California Legislative Analysis Office. Newsom and state lawmakers are pushing large-scale changes to Mental Health Service Act there, which imposes a 1% tax on personal income over $1 million to fund mental health services. The governor wants the California legislature to put his proposal before voters on the ballot next year, along with a $4.68 billion bond to add psychiatric treatment beds across the state. Most of the revenue from the MHSA, at least 95%, currently goes straight to counties, which use it to support a variety of services to treat mental illness. The law establishes broad categories for how counties can spend the funding, but the counties have flexibility to direct much of the resources as they see fit. A powerful grassroots conservative group is diving into Senate and House primaries to counter former President Trump's influence. An influential conservative political group has started getting involved in the elections earlier than ever, endorsing conservatives in primaries rather than waiting to support whoever wins the GOP primary. Americans for Prosperity Grassroots Election Arm, AFP Action, announced its first state of uh, Senate and governor governor endorsements on Tuesday following an impressive $70 million in fundraising and a first round of House endorsements in key races across the nation. The goal, according to AFP Action Director Nathan Nascimento, is to back quality candidates early to ensure better choices for voters in the general election at every level of elected office. A Christian social worker who's taking legal action after having a job offer withdrawn because he refused to embrace and promote homosexuality says it's imperative for other Christians to stand up for their beliefs or they will face increased hostility in the workplace. I could have just gone quietly, as a lot of people do, he said. They would save me a lot of stress, Felix Nagole said. Growing up in Cameroon, Nagole said he always thought of Great Britain and America as places where freedom of speech and freedom of religion were protected. He felt very sad upon finding his Christian beliefs under attack after moving to the United Kingdom years ago and pursuing a career in social work. In 2019, Nagole, he he won a landmark free speech case against his university after he kicked him after they kicked him out of, of a social work program because he had quoted the Bible in comments about homosexuality on his Facebook account. He was surprised again to find these comments getting him in trouble after he applied to a job with the NHS and the recruiting organization discovered his very strong views on the subject of homosexuality and marriage. After he was offered the job, Nagoli was told by the recruiter, Touchstone Leeds, that he must embrace and promote homosexuality to be uh, reconsidered for the hospital discharge role, even after being told that he was the best candidate for the position. He said, I think that is a step too far. I mean, he's now taking his case before an employment tribunal, allegedly religious, dis- uh, alleging rather religious discrimination. Nagoli said he's fighting his decision, uh, this decision out of a sense of justice, not just for himself, but for future generations. According to the Christian Legal Center, who is supporting Nagole, this theory is being tested in the U.K. court for the very first time. The theory claims that if a minority client, client, such as someone who is LGBTQ, uh, came across the social worker statements condemning homosexuality, they would face undue stress and potential harm. Nagoli denied hating or discriminating against any member of the LGBT community. He said that while he may disagree with their lifestyle, he can still show them love through his role as a social worker. Hmm. 
Well, the New Jersey Public Library angered liberal activists for moving a sexually explicit book that was accessible to children after receiving pushback from concerned residents. Cedar Grove Library in Essex County, New Jersey, decided to move the book, the controversial book, Gender Queer, to the adult section after receiving complaints when the book was displayed at the front of the library in the children's section for Pride Month. Gender Queer is a graphic novel that has been called pornographic, has uh, courted major controversy for its images and explicit descriptions of sex acts. It's been challenged in public school libraries throughout the U.S. Local LGBTQ and civil rights activists blasted the library's move as a form of censorship. Now, it wasn't removed. It was simply moved to a more appropriate section. Cedar Grove Mayor Carrie Peterson said they received phone calls, emails, and in-person complaints from residents regarding the book's placement before the library director decided to move the book to the adult section, where it's still accessible to anyone. Well, Gender Queer was the most challenged book in 2021 and 22, according to the American Library Association. Hans von Spakovsky points out that in a landmark decision that should have all Americans cheering, a Louisiana federal court recently upheld their First Amendment right to speak without being censored by the government. Judge Terry Doherty said the case, Missouri versus Biden, arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. Judge Doherty, he issued a preliminary injunction forbidding numerous federal agencies, including the FBI, the Justice Department and the Department of Homeland Security, as well as many individuals within the executive branch, like White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre, from communicating or meeting with social media companies for the purpose of urging, encouraging, pressuring or inducing in any manner the removal, deletion, suppression or reduction of content containing protected free speech posted on social media platforms. That's a direct quote. The injunction bans the Fed, the feds rather from working with outside groups such as the Sanford Internet Observatory that induced social media companies to suppress and delete protected free speech. And it even prevents the government from notifying social media companies to be on the lookout for postings containing protected free speech. The three-judge panel of the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has issued a temporary stay of Judge Doherty's injunction while the case is on appeal before the Fifth Circuit Court and said the appeal will be heard on an expedited basis. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening, as he said, to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Nathan Nelson. We'll be talking about short-term missions, particularly when uh, the church is involved in life-changing support for vulnerable children around the world. We'll talk about best practices. We'll also talk with Elise Gallus, Program Manager for Together PDX and part of the Palau team. Uh, We're going to talk about the upcoming Night of Worship and some of the other events surrounding this uh, gathering of Portland-area churches. Well, as part of a push to sinicize religion, the Chinese Communist Party has embarked on a 10-year project to rewrite the Bible and other religious texts. The Gospel, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus famously confirmed. By the way, Bible Study Fellowship this year is studying the Gospel of John. If you're looking for a great Bible study, I could highly recommend it. I'm so excited. It starts in September. But I digress. In the Gospel of John, Jesus famously confronts the accusers of a woman caught committing adultery, saying, let the one among you who is guiltless be the first to throw the stone at her. This is a translation of a sort. Well, the chastened uh, accuser slinks away and Jesus says to the woman, has no one condemned you? 
No one, sir, she replies. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. Go away and from this moment sin no more. Well, a beautiful story of forgiveness and mercy. That's what the scripture is about. Well, unless you're in the Communist Chinese Party and you're an official, then it's a story of a dissident challenging the authority of the state. A possible sneak preview of what a Bible with socialist characteristics might look like appeared in a Chinese university textbook back in 2020. The rewritten Gospel of John excerpt ends not with mercy, but with Jesus. Jesus himself stoning the adulterous woman to death. Well, across the Henan province, local Communist Chinese Party officials forced Protestant churches to replace the Ten Commandments with Xi Jinping quotes, Thou shall have no other gods before me, referring to himself. Um, that became the diktat. The um, resolutely guard against the infiltration of Western ideology. That's another of the Ten Commandments. Well, the 10-year project to rewrite the Bible, the Quran, and other sacred texts is all part of Xi Jinping's quest to make the faithful serve the party rather than God. At the 19th Party Congress, Chairman Xi declared, we will insist on this sinis- I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, sinicization, I can't say politicization either. Anyway, of uh, Chinese religions and provide active guidance for religion and socialism to coexist. Let me translate. Xi Jinping has no problem with the first commandment, just so long as he and the Communist Chinese Party are playing the role of God. And this isn't the first attempt uh, to do just that. And the scriptures are not. um, There's no threat to them fading away, but it is just the latest iteration of the enemy trying to destroy what God has so graciously provided. The investigation into the origin of the cocaine found in the White House was the best the Secret Service could do, despite not identifying a suspect, a top Biden administration official said. John Kirby, the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council, said uh, uh, that um, at the end of the probe, there wasn't enough forensic evidence to pinpoint the perpetrator. On the 2nd of July, a bag of cocaine was discovered in a lobby of the West Wing. Democratic lawmakers in California revived a stalled child trafficking bill Thursday following public pressure after they initially chose not to advance the legislation. The bill, Senate Bill 14, would increase penalties for child traffickers and would add the crime to the list of serious felonies in California. Anyone convicted of at least three serious felonies would face a prison sentence of between 25 years to life. Earlier this week, Democrats on the State Assembly Public Safety Committee chose not to advance the bill because they opposed longer prison sentences, arguing it isn't a deterrent to crime. Governor Gavin Newsom publicly supported the bill, introduced by Republican State Senator Shannon Grove, prompting Democrats to change course after uh, he went against the party. On Thursday, the committee advanced the bill with no amendments and a brief meeting for Democrats, including the chair, Reggie Jones-Sawyer, joined Republicans to advance the bill out of the committee ahead of a legislative deadline. Assemblymember Liz Ortega on Thursday said that she made a bad decision to vote against the bill earlier in the week. She plans on doing otherwise. In case you missed the hot topic of the day, That uh, was one of them, Senate Bill 14 in California. A federal judge this week dismissed a lawsuit challenging the Chico United, uh, rather unified school district's policy of protecting the gender identities of students from their parents. U.S. District Court Judge John Mendez said in a ruling that the authority of the district to safeguard the information overrode parental rights. In doing so, Mendez also kept intact guidance by California school officials to shield the privacy rights of transgender students. The ruling was prompted by a lawsuit filed in January on behalf of Aurora Regino, 
the mother of a child who was in elementary school last year. The 11-year-old began identifying as a different gender than was assigned at birth, which is sex, not gender, and told a school counselor. The child later returned to being identified by the gender assigned at birth. Parents, not schools, have the right and responsibility to make major life decisions on behalf of their minor children, the lawsuit had argued. More than 800,000 older borrowers will see their federal student debt disappear. Student loan borrowers on income-driven repayment plans who have made 20 to 25 years of payments. Yes, you heard me, 20 to 25 years of payments will get their remaining balances wiped out in coming weeks. The Education Department said eligible borrowers will be notified starting Friday. A total of $39 billion will be forgiven as part of the one-time adjustment to loan repayment plans the administration announced last year. Separate from the higher-profile $430 billion program the Supreme Court struck down in late June, this one-time adjustment will give borrowers credit retroactively for months that previously hadn't been counted. Now, it would still require the loan be repaid, and taxpayers will still be the ones paying it. So whether or not this may pass muster in future Supreme Court review, we'll just have to wait and see. New York City will pay nearly $2 billion to black and Hispanic people who wanted to become teachers but failed the exam, settling the lawsuit that alleged that the disparate passage rates showed that the test was racist. Some individuals who never worked as teachers will get more than a million dollars each and could even get pensions, which will inflate the cost well beyond $1.8 billion. The New York Post reported the Post interviewed 64-year-old Herman Grimm, uh, who will be paid two thousand, or rather two million fifty-five thousand three hundred and eighty-six dollars after failing the test. A lot. Uh, he could not provide any examples of how the questions were racist, but that doesn't really matter these days. Since the 2020 election, President Joe Biden has made clear his intention to drive America's gasoline and diesel-powered cars and trucks right off our roads. In May, the Environmental Protection Agency proposed a new rule that would impose such strict emissions limits that car makers would only be able to comply with them by switching to va- the vast majority of their production to electric vehicles by 2027. The EPA estimates that under its new rule, nearly 70 percent of all new cars and trucks produced in America would be fully electric by 2032. But the proposed rule is based on a flawed interpretation of the Clean Air Act. The act gives the EPA the authority to regulate air pollutants from vehicles, but not to dictate what types of vehicles consumers can own. It requires the EPA to set emission standards that allow manufacturers enough time to permit the development and application of the requisite technology, giving appropriate consideration to the cost of compliance within such a period. FBI Director Christopher Wray began his hearing before the House Judiciary Committee Wednesday by praising the Bureau's 38,000 rank-and-file personnel who protect the the country each and every day. In doing so, he inadvertently highlighted the FBI's real problem, the politicized few at the top. In his testimony, Mr. Wray rightly noted that FBI agents battle child predators, fentanyl cartels, Chinese espionage, cyber attackers, gangs, foreign terrorists, and human traffickers. He um, griped that this uh, work is overshadowed by the one or two investigations that seem to capture all the headlines. And whose fault is that? Those one or two or five or ten probes are hardly tiny affairs, but some of the biggest scandals in FBI history, in part because of bureau actions that violated bedrock American principles. And as the hearing illuminated, those headline cases have something in common. 
The bad judgment and poor behavior mostly comes from the upper echelons, FBI headquarters, senior agents, task force leaders, and Justice Department honchos. They are the ones damage, uh, damaging the Bureau's reputation and undermining the good work of everyone else. And Illinois state law prohibits landlords from asking about immigration status. The law will go into effect at the beginning of 2024. It will ban landlords from discriminating against potential tenants on the basis of their immigration status. The governor there signed Senate Bill 1817 into law late last month, which will add protections in the Illinois Human Rights Act for housing regarding immigration uh, status protection and discriminatory advertising. The law was part of several pieces of legislation Pritzker signed last month, including another law aimed at giving undocumented immigrants access to state driver's licenses. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll continue to march our way through some of the headlines. And in the second hour, a conversation with Nathan Nelson. We'll talk about short-term missions and best practices. And Elise Gallus, She's a program manager for Together PDX and a Palau team member this Saturday or rather this Sunday. Let me get that right. This Sunday at the waterfront, there's a time of worship, 4 o'clock p.m., to which you are invited. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blinn producing Dave King Engineering. Coming up after the top of the hour, we'll have a conversation with Nathan Nelson on short-term missions and how to support vulnerable children around the world in short-term missions by using best practices. That's coming up next uh, next segment. Salem Media Group with a with a heavy heart announced that the passing of co-founder Stuart Epperson at age 86 has left a void. Stuart, along with his brother-in-law, Edward Atzinger, founded Salem Communications, now Salem Media Group, of which KPDQ is a part, in 1986 and expanded Salem's influence with Christian and politically conservative news talk, formatted radio stations, and media assets nationwide. Mr. Epperson was a longtime leader in Christian radio as a former member of the board of directors of the National Religious Broadcasters Association. In 2005, Time magazine named him one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Today, he stands before his savior, where I'm certain he says uh, he has heard him say, well done. In other news, Arizona State University is facing two major crises at once, staring down the barrel of an investigation from the state legislature, while at least one top donor has withdrawn his funding. The controversy began with the university's firing of Ann Atkinson, executive director of the T.W. Lewis Center for Personal Development at ASU's Barrett Honors College. Atkinson says she was laid off last month after she organized an event titled Health, Wealth and Happiness, featuring the conservative commentators Dennis Prager and Charlie Kirk. ASU, by contrast, says that she was fired because the center lost funding while claiming that the event nevertheless was well attended and was successful. But the sponsor of the T.W. Lewis Center, millionaire Tom Lewis, announced that he had withdrawn his annual donation of $400,000 after Atkinson's firing, saying that he had witnessed alarming and outright hostility from faculty and students alike in response to the conservative event. Recently, the CEO of the firm Larry Fink distanced himself from the investment trend he himself fostered. He announced a rebranding away from ESG, saying that he was embarrassed to have been involved in this political debate and said that ESG had been weaponized by the left and the right. We're talking about BlackRock slowly backing away from ESG amidst a vocal shareholder backlash. Corporate Secretary 
uh, points out that BlackRock has announced plans to extend pass-through voting to its larger ETF in a move that would hand retail investors a greater say on company matters. Ukraine attacked the Crimean Bridge, a key link from Russia to the illegally annexed Crimean Peninsula, killing two people and disrupting vehicle traffic early Monday. Russian and Ukrainian officials said a railroad line over the bridge, which is a vital artery rather for uh, Russian troops and military supplies, escaped damage and was quickly restored. Shares of AT&T have fallen to a three-decade low amid a sharp decline in traditional cable television subscribers and the use of landlines. On Monday, shares for the telecommunications company are targeted, targeting their weakest finish since March of 93, uh, when the stock ended the session at 13.92 year-to-date shares have fallen uh, over 26% after the plummeting roughly um, 34% the last 12 months. Sound of Freedom is projecting to hit the $100 million mark this week after its second weekend in theaters, with the audiences increasing by more than 37% over the film's first weekend at the box office. The Jim Caviezel-led project, which deals with the horrors of human trafficking, has earned more than $85 million at the the domestic box office over a 13-day run through Sunday. Former President Donald Trump said Tuesday morning that he expects another arrest and indictment to come his way as a result of a January 6th grand jury investigation being conducted in Washington, D.C. after he was notified on Sunday evening that he was a target of that probe. And in other news, as she turns the page, New York City Mayor Eric Adams tried to um, tried this not too long ago. It didn't uh, go over well with the residents, but Massachusetts officials are seeking residents willing to host newly arrived families in need of shelter. Hosts are asked to provide a room or apartment for a few days until longer term accommodations can be arranged. A significant portion of the families in need of housing in the state are new immigrants. Many of those arriving in Boston have fled violence in Haiti and traveled through other states before coming to Massachusetts. And U.S. home prices surged again in June to a near record high, reflecting a worsening inventory shortage that's pushed many would-be home buyers out of the market. Medium home prices jumped 1.9% in June from the previous month, hitting $429,056, according to the new report from real estate brokerage firm Redfin. Home prices are now down about 0.6% from where they were one year ago and down 1.5% from a record high in May of 2022. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten has initiated a dubiously named Banned Bookmobile Tour in which she touts the books that an increasing number of parents have been calling on their school boards to remove from their schools. The books in question promote sexual deviant ideology, often with graphic descriptions and portrayals of sex acts. In short, these books are uh, propagandistic pornography used to normalize uh, sexual conduct such as well i won't even go into it anyway in an effort to legitimize the case that parents are engaged in a nazi-like book banning movement weingarten distinguishingly lumps in a book like to kill a mockingbird and the hunger games among the list of banned material the truth is that few parents or schools are seeking to ban either of those books the real question is this why is weingarten so invested in pushing pornography in schools Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau blamed Canadian Muslim opposition to his government pushing LGBTQ ideology in public schools on the American right wing. 
Protests uh, recently arose in Canada following a viral video clip showing an Edmonton public school teacher berating Muslim students for having skipped school in order to avoid pride events. LGBTQ ideology is being pushed by Trudeau's administration in public schools, so he sought to gaslight the public. Every product has its positives and negatives, which is why in a free market system, those products that beat the competition do so by better meeting the needs of the consumer. It's only when the heavy hand of government steps in to squelch competition that the consumer loses. And while electric vehicles may be the right choice for some consumers, they're clearly not for everyone, nor should they be. One of the drawbacks to EVs is the ironic fact that they are much more negatively impacted by the climate than are gas-powered vehicles. Hot weather can wreak havoc on EV batteries, leading to overwhelming, overheating rather, that can shorten the life of the batteries. And a federal court upheld Oregon's uh, anti-Second Amendment law. A Donald Trump-appointed judge has upheld Oregon's draconian anti-Second Amendment gun law as constitutional. Measure 114 bans magazines that hold more than 10 rounds and requires a permit to purchase a firearm. But these constitutional infringements were declared by U.S. District Judge Karen uh, Immerga to be in line with the nation's history and tradition of regulating uniquely dangerous features of weapons and firearms to protect public safety. In a ruling, she dubiously argued that um, mislabeled large-capacity magazines are not commonly used for self-defense and are therefore not protected by the Second Amendment. Well, on this day in history, 1848, the first Women's Rights Convention convenes in Seneca Falls, New York. 1961, TWA becomes the first airlines to begin showing regularly scheduled in-flight movies as it presents By Love Possessed to first-class passengers on a flight from New York to Los Angeles. 1969, Apollo 11 and its astronauts Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins go into orbit around the moon. 1980, the Moscow Summer Olympics begin, minus dozens of nations, including the U.S., that are boycotting the games because of the Soviet military intervention in Afghanistan. 1985, Krista McAuliffe, the of New Hampshire is chosen to be the first school teacher to ride aboard the space shuttle. McAuliffe and six other crew members would die when the Challenger exploded shortly after liftoff in January of 1986. 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush joins former presidents Ronald Reagan, Gerald R. Ford, and Richard M. Nixon at ceremonies dedicating the Nixon Library and Birthplace since redesignated the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in Yorba Linda, California. 1993, President Bill Clinton announces a policy allowing homosexuals to serve in the military under a compromise dubbed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Don't Pursue. And 2005, President George Herbert Walker Bush, or excuse me, George W. Bush nominates John Roberts to the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic coming up next, and followed by a conversation with Nathan Nelson on short-term missions and Elise Gallus on Together PDX. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, it is the season in which short-term mission trips are being taken all around the country. Uh, Christians are mobilizing in droves to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus. My next guest joins us. He's a pastor of mission and outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle, Washington, to share with us best practices for churches who are looking to provide long-term, life-changing support, in particular to vulnerable children around the world. Now, it's possible that we go with the best of intentions, full of enthusiasm, 
and we don't do as well as we um, as we think or we ought. So we're going to talk about best practices. Uh, once again, my guest, Nathan Nelson, is the pastor of mission and outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle. He has years experience working in short term mission on the side of the sending church and receiving organization. He holds a Master of Divinity with an emphasis in international development and urban studies from Fuller Theological Seminary and Bachelor of Arts in Global Development and Sociology from Seattle Pacific. He calls the Pacific Northwest his home, and today he joins us by phone to talk about how we can do a a great job of uh, extending the love of Christ in our short-term mission trip. Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan. Yes, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, I've done lots of short-term mission trips, and I can say in hindsight, some of them were very successful. They accomplished what we intended, and others were less well <laughs> um, carried out, and we didn't necessarily mm-hmm. leave the kind of uh, benefit that we had hoped to. Uh, why is it important for us to think through best practices in terms of how we approach our desire to uh, to be the hands and feet of Jesus in short-term missions? Absolutely. That is a terrific question. And I share your experience of being a part of a lot of mission trips in my time. I've spent over half my life working in the short-term mission field, either on behalf of the sending organization, the receiving community, or the facilitating um, church. And so in that, um, I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I can say for sure that I have landed on uh, some best practices in community with other churches and organizations working towards that goal. Um, and there's still a lot left to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for sure one of the reasons it's so important that we think really critically about the the ways that we engage short-term mission, whatever the context may be, locally or globally, is that if our goal really is for it to further the mission of Christ in the world, that's no small task. It's no easy thing. It shouldn't come easy. And so for that reason, um, the stakes are high. Uh, It's a lot easier to do harm than good. And so, uh, again, particularly as it pertains to vulnerable children, um, the stakes are even higher. And so while uh, we are so appreciative, myself and others in kind of this community of Christians looking for uh, better pathways forward in short-term mission, we're appreciative of the Christian heart to come alongside the orphan, to come alongside the vulnerable. And we know that it requires a lot of intentionality, a lot of humility, and a lot of learning for that to do uh, more helping than hurting, so to speak. Yeah, a lot of humility. I appreciate your emphasis on that. Before we talk about some of the best practices, what, what kind of damage can we do if we have not prepared adequately? We come in with the best, again, with the best of intentions, but leave without having left the kind of um, imprint that we had hoped. What, what, what damage can we do? Oh, wow. The list is long. Um, I can speak to you uh, just from my personal experience and say one of the things that uh, we've seen that can happen is an inflated ego unintentionally on behalf of the goer. Mm. Um, So often we go on short-term mission trips believing that, in fact, we are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus in a community, and we are blind to the reality that Jesus is alive and well wherever it is that you're going, and is doing something unique in a community. And so our job as goers, I believe, is to become attuned to what God is already doing in a place and ask the question of how am I called to come alongside? A humble learning posture 
that puts the people in the place first and trusts that they are called to be the hands of Jesus in their context. And so we get to be partners with that. Um, and, and that's a real privilege. If, if, and so there's this sort of sense to which we often in the Western uh, church uh, kind of get this inflated ego that the world needs us. And I think now is a great opportunity, especially after the pandemic, when we're sort of attuned to our own brokenness in maybe new and unique ways, that we can um, take our rightful place as learners amidst what God is doing throughout all of the church and all of the world. So that's one. Um, another thing is that we see, particularly for vulnerable children, that um, the best of intentions can have the greatest harm. Uh, there is this thing called attachment disorder and other kinds of um, challenges that vulnerable children face, um, histories of trauma, that if a group of, of you know, uh, well-intentioned, enthusiastic foreigners come swooping in for a short period of time, a couple of days to a week or so, um, and then leave, that can do a lot of damage on the psyche of a kid that's experienced this trauma throughout their life that has had people coming and going constantly that doesn't have a consistent, loving, caring father or motherly figure in their life. So as goers, it's incumbent upon us to think critically about how can we empower those long-term mother, fatherly, kindred um, figures that are going to be doing the work ongoing mm-hmm. far before we arrive and long after we leave. Oh, that's so wise. I'll never forget reading an article. I had just come back from a mission trip. It was written by an African pastor um, who was writing about how they feel compelled to be gracious and to receive the short-term missionaries who come, but the damage that had been done and uh, the presumption that preceded the trip and was left behind. And I, it was really very humbling to think we need to be more careful and thoughtful about our approach uh, and what we are bringing to the community and what the community brings to us as we partner with those uh, who are doing the ministry, the work of the ministry on the ground uh, long term. Well, let's let's talk about best practices. And I'm so grateful that we have learned over time, not just what not to do, but what to do in order to be effective in our, our ministry outreach. Yes, absolutely. And and you're so right. And I appreciate that encouraging perspective. Amidst the, the kind of impact of the harm over the years, a lot of attention has been given to that. There's also really practical things that we can do for God to use short-term mission trips for nothing less than His kingdom purposes in the world. And so there, there certainly is hope. Uh, one of the core best practices that I like to start with is this notion of partnership. Uh, partnership is a buzzword in the Christian mission industry, so we have to be careful how we use it. Uh, but when I say partnership, what I mean is a long-term relationship with an indigenously-led or, or locally-led organization and in, in whatever the context may be that's providing the leadership and the guidance and the ongoing investment in the community. So we as a foreign church have the opportunity to partner for Um, We at our church, Bethany Community Church, we start with an initial period of three years, but often these partnerships span more than a decade. And over the course of that time, uh, we together grow deep in relationship. We build a foundation of trust. 
so that when our teens go, they become ambassadors of our love and support of the whole congregation to the staff that's doing the work of the organization long-term in the community. And we become ambassadors of the partnership uh, to the communities in which they serve. And so our focus as as a church missionally has shifted from uh, being perceiving ourselves as the ones who are doing the work, quote-unquote, in these finite short-term mission experiences, and more so that we are ones uh, called to be this kind of notion of an ambassador, that we go and we participate for a short amount of time in what we call strategic visits to our global partner. So we've rephrased that language of short-term mission trip. And on these strategic visits, that's exactly what we do. We visit our partner. We know that there's limitations to what can be done and can't be done in the short span of a visit, but we believe it's significant because it builds the relationship. It allows us to learn about what God is doing in another part of the world. And if we think critically about that, it can impact the way we're doing the work locally in our context as well. So that's that's a big part of what we do. And um, again, like I said, these visits are strategic. We really want to think about what is it we can do in this finite period of time that's going to have a long-term impact on the well-being of what God is doing through an organization or a ministry in a unique context in the world. So our focus has really been on the staff, the staff of these organizations and ministries we partner with who are doing the work ongoing. And we do retreats together. We Uh do um, all kinds of different activities so that when we leave, they actually look forward to our coming back. It's not extra work they have to do to accommodate a donor church. (laughs) Rather, they go, this is a visit between friends, between family, and we're in this work together. We're encouraging them. We're supporting them. Uh, in the work that they're that they're doing, that is right. such a wonderful approach. I remember sitting in the bus before we exited into one area, and the head of the ministry uh, got up and made an announcement. And I won't say it verbatim, but essentially what he was saying is that these people uh, they really need us, and uh, we're kind of the focus of this whole. Uh, he said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> you know, we're the focus of this, <laughs> and we were a burden to the the community for the period that we were there until we left. And I, I was grieved because we hadn't accomplished what I think all of us intended to accomplish when we uh, when we made that commitment to go. But what you're describing is honoring those who are doing the work of the ministry, recognizing that we are not swooping in as the saviors in this area, but we are um, uh, supporting those who are engaged in ministry when that's uh, when that's the case. And we're making a commitment that's more than the two weeks that we uh, might be spending there. Check off our checklist and then look, huh, where else in the world do I want to yeah. visit? Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about best practices. My guest, Nathan Nelson, is the pastor of Mission and Outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle, Washington. We'll continue that conversation in a moment. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Nathan Nelson. He's a pastor of mission and outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle, Washington. We're talking about best practices for churches looking to provide long-term, a life-changing support for vulnerable children around the world in the form of short-term missions. And I so appreciated your emphasis on partnership that really is the foundation of uh, our going and uh, spending time not being a burden, but supporting those who are doing the work of the ministry and discovering what God is already doing. What else can we do uh, under this heading of best practices? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, starting on a foundation of partnership 
you're on a really good trajectory, whether it be as a church or a receiving organization doing good work in a community. Um, through partnership, uh, and a, which includes a commitment of time, uh, you've got the time that it takes for good work to genuinely materialize. We can't microwave mission. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it shows an example of uh, a microwaved version of God's mission, the kingdom of God coming about in our midst. It takes time. It's a mustard seed that grows slowly into a tree and begins to bear fruit. And so, again, partnership is so core to the whole thing. Another piece of that that's sort of rooted in that notion of partnership is that when we go on trips, we need to right-size our expectations for what the trip Mm -hmm. is all about. And so I mentioned earlier a little bit of this language of strategic visit that we use. We've rebranded our short-term mission trips to be strategic visits to our global partners. So I would ask you, if you're listening, what are your trips really about? What do they do? And choose a name that best represents that. A mission trip is a pretty grandiose name for a trip. If we're talking about um, the mission of God, creating disciples, um, in in a week's time, my goodness, good on you. If that's what your trips are genuinely accomplishing um, year in and year out that you're sending. But often it's more this role of a supporter, of an encourager, uh, of learning, of becoming attuned to how huge God is in our world and mm-hmm. what it is that God is doing and how that can really have an impact on us as the goers. And as we return to our own communities, to continue to impact our perspective and the ways that we consider impacting the vulnerable in our context. So in that way, I've heard really great names for trips, things like learning trips, uh, mindset transformation trips, uh, encouraging trips, um, service learning trips. There's a lot of things that we can do to help um, kind of right-size the expectations of the goer from the outset. And Name a trip for what it is. Uh, I think that can go a long way in helping uh, the the, per- the perception around short-term mission trips that, frankly, uh, in our day and age, many people are skeptical of, even within the Christian world that mm-hmm. have been about this work for several decades now. So partnership is an important emphasis and also right-sizing our expectations. And that, again, is such an important element because if we go – as just a you know the next step in our international travel log, uh, rather than understanding what my purpose and function is, um, we're going to miss out and we're going to deprive. I think those we're going to of what could be a tremendous uh, partnership in ministry and growth there and and here. You mentioned in our own context. Do these same um, best practices work when we're doing local ministry? Yes, a terrific question, and I would say with you know all caps many exclamation marks. Absolutely. They absolutely apply. Uh, One of the things that I am kind of most excited about at this stage of my ministry career is this notion of like really challenging the language that we hear, which is really good language of mutual transformation and going, what does mutual transformation really mean? So the focus of all of our partnerships, all of our short-term mission trips that are built within the context of those partnerships is that they would be mutually transformative. So part of that means that we expect God is going to do good things through us and our partner organization or ministry in in a specific region or community in another part of the world. We also expect that our church community should be equally, if not more, impacted by that work as well. So we in Seattle have a shared story of transformation 
as what God is doing in a place like Rwanda or in Costa Rica or in Nicaragua. And so for us, as a church, that's caused us to ask the question, well, if our short-term mission trips are, are so important to our own learning, to our own sense of um, understanding what God is doing in the world, maybe we ought to afford that same opportunity to our partners. Mm. And so recently, we uh, invited a, and, and helped fund and do all the different logistical things that are required for a short-term mission team from our partner organization, World Relief in Rwanda, to come to Seattle. And they were on a short-term mission trip, if you will, from Rwanda to Seattle. And in that week that we spent together, oh my goodness, all of these same principles applied, all of the same objectives that we have when we go there, we applied for this trip. And um, it was absolutely incredible. And as someone who's accustomed to going, to get to be on the receiving end and really just um, kind of experience what that's like, it, it helped me appreciate even more how important it is that we humble ourselves as the goers and believe that God is already up to something. And in that, believe you have a role to play in it. And man, our um, partners in Rwanda over the course of these years, I'll just give a quick anecdote. We have sought to embody the work that they do in their context in our own. For us, uh, for, for World Relief, the work is empowering local churches to serve the most vulnerable. And so they unite local churches from different backgrounds and, and, and empower them with cutting-edge community development practices that transform their communities. So we said, why can't we get churches of different denominations, of different backgrounds in our own context here in North Seattle together and attack the issue of homelessness together? And so we started doing that. It was directly inspired by the way that Rwandans themselves have really begun to transform their communities and how we've been a part of that work globally. And now locally, we have a network of churches that are doing the same thing. We're, we're uniting around a shared heart to see compassion embodied for those living outside. And we're seeing a lot of transformation happen as a result. So when our friends from Rwanda came to Seattle, they got to teach us about the work of church unity and collaboration. They got to see our own expression of how they, over the course of over a decade now that we've been partnered, have impacted us uh, in the way that we can do that locally. So maybe not everyone has as direct of a connection like that, but I do believe that if we really center ourselves around this notion of mutual transformation in our short-term mission trips, we should see more stories like this. We should see ourselves impacted yes. locally in ways as marvelous as we see happening globally. I just love the notion of mutual respect, that we recognize that God is at work in us and through us, but we also recognize that the partnerships that we've developed, that they have the same value, that they have something to offer us as much as we have to offer them. And that's so often missing, that we are Americans coming into an area that can benefit by our presence without recognizing uh, the beauty of what they're doing and what God is doing in and through them and what we can learn along the way. What a beautiful model. Partnership, uh, right-sizing our expectations, mutual transformation. Any addition? Well, you know, I would just, I would be remiss to not mention explicitly that if as many Christians are in the interest of doing, we want to support the most vulnerable children in the world. And oftentimes, historically, that has meant our going and supporting um, things like institutionalized care, what we call orphanages. And so many, it's, it's more than a quarter of mission trips go abroad and, and, and visit or support an orphanage. And what we know to be true is that children 
grow up best in the context of a family. And so we want to be moving ever more in all of our partnerships and all of our practices and all of our short-term mission experiences that those would be supporting family-based care solutions Mm -hmm. for orphans and vulnerable children in the world, as opposed to more institutionalized models such as a traditional orphanage. Uh, It's a really hard thing to do for many churches, for many organizations. It requires peeling back a lot of the assumptions that we've made for the years, but what it allows us to do is empower local communities uh, to to care for their own. And uh, there are, you know, eight out of 10 kids in an orphanage has a biological family Mm -hmm. member, um, one of their uh, biological parents alive. Those parents with the right support can provide the best care for their kids. So on mission trips, as, as tempting as it is to be able to just look for the nearest orphanage to wherever it is that you're going and go and see the children, hear their stories, and then leave, not only does it impact the attachment of young ones vulnerable ones negatively, it also isn't doing anything to help build an infrastructure of support that's long-term and sustaining. So um, I would just commend anyone listening to this uh, to to dive deeper into this notion of family-based care, believing that God would restore a whole family unit, that that to invest in a child is to invest in their family, and to invest in their family is to impact a community for the long term. Mm. Well, Nathan, I so appreciate your insight in challenging us to approach short-term missions perhaps a bit differently and to see just what God will do when we uh, emphasize these best practices that you have uh, shared with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a uh, total joy. Thank you. Again, Nathan Nelson is pastor of Mission and Outreach at Bethany Community Church in Seattle, Washington. Up next, we'll talk with Elise Gallus. She is a program manager for Together PDX. She's also a part of the Palau team. We're going to talk about the night of worship coming up this Sunday and look back and ahead to what Together PDX has done and will do in the days ahead. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, we have been in a season of service, of prayer, of sharing, and we're well, culminating this uh, summer with worship. Here to talk with us about the uh, Together PDX that's been going on throughout the summer, but will continue when the summer has, uh, has ended. Elise Gallis is a program manager with Together PDX. She's also part of the Palau team. She joins us today to talk about what's happened and what's going to happen as we move forward. Elise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. I'm so looking forward to talking with you today. You know, this has been an incredible summer because there have been opportunities for the body of Christ, not just individual churches, but the church coming together to extend the love of Christ into our community in a variety of ways. How did you um, how have you been involved in this effort? Yeah, I've actually kind of been the the main person helping coordinate and plan it. So I have the privilege of working with the whole leadership team of Together PDX, which is made up of like 60 different people from all different congregations around the community. Um, I'm full-time staff at the Louise Plow Association, but specifically dedicated to Portland. And so I've been around since the first, uh, I think it was over dinner when we had a conversation with a few pastors who said to Kevin Palau, hey, I, I think the city's ready for us to do something big. And I was there and have kind of got to run with it ever since. Well, you know, the, the pandemic isolated many of us from one another and that we were slow to emerge from our hibernation, if you will. How has that impacted 
uh, the uh, the effort together PDX to to reach out into our community to support uh, nonprofits that are serving the the houseless in our community and so on. How has that impacted this movement that predates this summer and will uh, live long after it? Absolutely, yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, the season that we're in is really the purpose of really the why now, especially for this big waterfront worship sort of event. I mean, the pandemic really hurt a lot of people. It was really exhausting for a lot of pastors. A lot of us are still going to churches where we feel like, man, we're we're maybe half the congregation Mm -hmm. we used to be. So I think there's just a lot of discouragement in that season. And so I think what we were saying is, you know, even though we haven't maybe fully healed from that, it's time to just bring people together and show up as one body of Christ and kind of have this presence where we can say, we're still here. We're still together. The Lord is absolutely still working and hopefully it'll provide some encouragement um, as well as just to focus on, on the things that unite us rather than mm-hmm. divide us. Mm-hmm. As you know, during COVID, it was such a divisive time for so many reasons and, and that's fine. But I think it's just a time to recenter and focus on what we can agree upon, which is Jesus and giving him glory. And so this time at the waterfront will be a part of that. Yeah, I know that hundreds of people from uh, many, many churches in our community in Vancouver and the Portland metro area have been involved in Together PDX through the prayer movement, uh, the service Mm -hmm. uh, aspect of it. But for those who have not been participants in those aspects of Together PDX this summer, are they welcome to the worship event on the waterfront this Sunday? Oh my gosh, absolutely. Yes, everyone is welcome. Um, We have great people, yeah, like you said, who have been praying with us really intentionally for the city for the past three months. We have churches and individuals who have been serving with our, our houseless neighbors and organizations that serve them. But everyone is welcome to kind of come and just give God the glory this Sunday at the waterfront. Now, I know how I would answer this question, but what what benefit do you think we derive from coming together from various local churches uh, to worship along with the the greater body of Christ, of which we are all members uh, in a public venue like the Portland Waterfront? How do we as the body of Christ, the church, how do we benefit as individuals and the church in general, by coming together? Oh, man, there's so many. (laughs) I would say one thing that I love about, I mean, my job in general, which is working with all these churches, but especially that I'm looking forward to on Sunday, is I think, you know, we, we all have our own stuff that we're working through. Every church has their own challenges. And sometimes we can kind of have our head down and Mm -hmm. focus so much on those things that we miss the bigger picture of what God is doing in our city. And so I think coming together just reminds us that, my, myself, my household, my church is just a tiny glimpse of what God is doing. And it just reminds us that God is so much bigger and it gives us a vision for what can happen when we all come together, um, uniting for him. I mean, I think it just, yeah, it just, it just pulls us out and allows us to see that we get to be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. Yeah, that we're members of a much larger family. And you're right, we that are. God is at work in ways that we can't even comprehend. But we are reminded of his greatness and his faithfulness and his goodness. 
Uh, so gathering at the waterfront for a time of worship is just, oh, it's like having dessert before dinner. It's it's just a yes. good time. Now I it's, should a, mi- it's a taste of the kingdom, absolutely. Yes, yes. I should mention it all starts at 4 o'clock on the Portland waterfront this Sunday, again at Waterfront Park. There are going to be all kinds of things. There are going to be food carts there, so you don't even need to arrange to eat before you come. Just enjoy fellowship. They're anticipating children will be there, and so there's some uh, some things for them to, to do. But uh, the, the most important thing is we are going to focus our attention on and um, our energy toward just honoring God and celebrating who he is and what he has done. My understanding is there are local worship pastors from a number of churches in the metro area. Matt Redman will also be there, but the focus really is on him. And I'm just so looking forward to gathering shoulder to shoulder with fellow believers and uh, lifting him up in that public venue. Yes, yes. Thank you, Georgine. And for all of these details, by the way, it's all on togetherpdx.org slash 2023. So if anyone has questions or wants to clarify anything or see the physical map, go ahead and go there. But yeah, we'll have food trucks and lawn games set up starting at 3 p.m. So feel free to come early, bring your friends, get a good seat. Um, you should bring your own lawn chair or blanket just so you'll have somewhere to sit. But just come hang out. And yeah, like you said, our friend Mike Dean, who's the lead pastor at Imago Eastside, mm-hmm has been pulling together a band um, with, I think, nine different churches represented. It's a diverse and beautiful worship band. And so we'll get to hear from them. We'll get to hear from Matt Redman. And it's just going to be such a fun time. Well, I'm telling you, there's nothing like looking to your right, looking to your left. And you're not familiar necessarily with the faces that are surrounding you, but to see the beauty of the body of Christ in all our various iterations. We look different. We're of different generations. And yet we are focusing on the one who created us all and has called us into ministry. You know, I'm excited that Together PDX 2023 represents this season, but it's it doesn't end when the summer draws to a close. This is an ongoing effort to minister in the city of Portland as the greater body of Christ. What can folks expect? Um, after this event on Sunday, moving forward, as we look at our city and how desperately we need Jesus. Yes, that's so good. Well, Together PDX, like you alluded to before, I mean, didn't start to do this event. It's been around for a while now. And really, the mission is Together PDX exists to see our community flourish by uniting, connecting, strengthening, and serving local churches, pastors, leaders, and community members of the whole Portland metro area. And so what that looks like is we have four main teams, pastors, prayer, serve, and share. And those teams are all made up entirely of volunteers who represent different local churches all around the community. And they're coming together to uniquely uh, discern what God has for them. And so it looks different in different seasons. But one example would be our CERT PDX team has been putting together this summer of service. And that doesn't actually end on July 23rd. It goes for the whole summer. Mm-hmm. And they've really been working with about 25 different nonprofits that are already doing great work serving our houseless community. Um, and that didn't just come for the summer. This is something that our team decided that they wanted to start last fall. So they, they put together something that they're calling the Portland Houseless Care Collaborative. And so they've been gathering with these nonprofits just to build relationships. There was really no specific goal in mind other than relational unity. And these nonprofits aren't all believers. Some of them aren't faith-based, but they're willing and eager to engage with churches. And so they've been meeting since the fall And when we decided that we were going to do this big summer event, they thought, wow, let's let's go one step further and take these nonprofits that we've already been working with 
and invite churches to engage in some really easy, tangible ways. So that's kind of the the push for the summer, but that's a great example of something that won't end. Even after the summer's over, we're going to continue those relationships with the Portland Health Care Collaborative, and we're inviting more churches to participate. And again, it's not necessarily committing to serve in a particular way. Um, It's really just committing to, hey, I'd like to build a relationship with Uh, maybe an executive director of somebody who is serving our neighbors all the time. So that's just one example. That's within the Serve PDX team, an initiative that they've put together. But we have similar initiatives within our prayer PDX team and our share PDX team. And we have opportunities for pastors to come together in kind of friendship and relationship through pastors PDX groups. So there are so many ways for churches and individuals to engage all the time. And again, togetherpdx.org, you can get all of that information for the event that's coming up on Sunday. You can add slash uh, 2023 for the important details, but you are invited to come at three o'clock. There's stuff to do. Uh, Bring your long chair, bring your blanket, whatever, and prepare to worship with the body of Christ in the greater Portland area. It's encouraging to know that we are surrounded by believers. We may not even know (laughs) are part of the family. And to uh, to worship together is such a privilege. And as you mentioned a moment ago, Elise, it's sort of a glimpse of what it's going to be like one day when we are uh, surrounding the throne of grace and worshiping the one in whom we've put our trust. That day is coming, but we want to be found faithful today. Uh, doing what he's calling us to do now. And one opportunity to do that together is coming up this Sunday, 4 o'clock p.m. The worship begins at uh, Portland Waterfront Park. Well, Elise, I appreciate your commitment to ministry here in the Portland metro area, helping to equip uh, the uh, the Portland PDX team and those of us who uh, want to connect with our neighbors. And we're looking forward to a great time of worship. Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. And I look forward to seeing so many people this Sunday at the waterfront. It's going to be good. Thanks, Elise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, Elise Gallus is the program manager for Together PDX. She's also a Palau team member. You can find all the important details at togetherpdx.org slash 2023. We're going to take a break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's surprising that few people are aware that the Covenant School extended mercy to the person who was responsible for taking the lives of many of their students and a couple of faculty members. It's gotten surprisingly little coverage. It gives me no pleasure, Bethel McGrew wrote in an op-ed with... Um, Uh, Christian Times, it gives me no pleasure that two of my most read pieces on Substack were reactions to mass shootings. In April, I wrote about the Covenant School shooting where former student uh, Audrey Hale took multiple innocent lives before the police stopped her. There's been surprisingly little ongoing media coverage in the wake of that crime, or perhaps not so surprisingly, given that the identities of both killer and victims sat disturbingly with popular media narratives. It was morbidly interesting to watch writers wavering in real time over whether to refer to Hale as he, she, or he, him. Clearly, there's been an incentive to move on from this particular mass shooting as quickly as possible. But in some circles where I run, she writes, the school has come into renewed focus recently for something that isn't actually new news. It's the essence of the social media that some things only become news after enough people notice them. That new old news is the fact that the victims' families 
pooled their resources to pay for the funeral of their children's killer, their wives killer, the husband and father's killer. Audrey Hale's parents didn't have to spend a dime to give her a proper burial. Now just think about that for a moment. This young woman marched into the school she once attended and she murdered several children and three faculty members. And the families of those victims pooled their resources to pay for the funeral of their killer. In context, it's helpful to note that Hale's parents are, in fact, Christians themselves. This exposed them to some of the ugliest hot takes in the wake of the shooting, as some press implied they were hateful for not accepting Audrey's trans experiments while allowing her to live in their home as an adult woman. Given that they're active in their Christian community and that Hale used to attend the school, it's likely that some covenant people know them well. So this was, among other things, a kindness extended by Christians to a fellow Christian who are just as shattered by that day of horrors, if not even more so. Still, I think one could legitimately describe the act as, well, virtuous beyond the basic demands of virtue. Is it praiseworthy and merciful for Covenant to pay for the funeral of their children's murderer? Yes. Did they have to do it? No. That's what made it merciful. In a similar way, we award medals for extreme valor above and beyond the call of duty. People seem to be having difficulty threading this needle in their reactions to this news. There is an especially vocal niche of the reactionary right where the school's choice is being framed as weak, pathetic, or excusing Hale in death. Some are going so far as to say it exemplifies a Christian heresy, arguing there's no precedent in early Christian history or church history for covering a violent enemy's funeral expenses. Never mind that the church then and the church now are separated by a thousand differences in cultural context, including the obvious fact that there's no early church analogy for a situation where a perpetrator was raised by Christians. But even aside from this, the point of the kind gesture is not to excuse Hale's crimes. She's gone and is facing her creator. Forgiveness by definition means there is something to forgive. Otherwise, it has no meaning or force. This is the difference between it doesn't matter or I forgive you. Granted, there could be rhetoric that's unnecessarily generous, not merely in the sense of extending mercy, but in the sense of saying something that simply isn't true. I tread with caution here because at least one victim's family member has used this rhetoric, but I think this applies to the choice to label Hale as a victim herself. That is importantly false. Perhaps with enough recontextualization, one might say she fell victim to insidious propaganda about her identity. But with humility and respect, I think it is legitimate to criticize rhetoric that would flatten the sharp asymmetry between Hale and her victims. I also think that where anyone is pressing the claim that it would be a sin not to cover her funeral, this should be criticized also. The invention of new sins is a dangerous business. Jesus tells Christians to love their enemies. He doesn't provide detailed guidance for the form this must take in every time and circumstance. This is the form covenant chose for it to take in this time and circumstance. Let us say that it's praiseworthy and excellent and let that be enough. Meanwhile, meanwhile, I find it equally regrettable that the left was has weaponized words like compassion and mercy and that a bitter contingent of the right can't recognize genuine compassion and mercy when they see it. They can't recognize the sort of charity people spontaneously extend to each other, human to human, without trying to 
polish a halo or earn social credits. In their minds, there must always be a catch, a hidden angle. People must always be looking left for approval. Is it possible that some individuals in the covenant orbit are advancing ideas that would chime with leftist policy? Well, maybe. Some leaders like Brent Leatherwood may take the occasion to push for gun control. It's fully legitimate to criticize this, but that doesn't change the fact that in their human response to the most heinous of crimes, like other Christian victims of that crime before them, the parents of Audrey Hale's victims have modeled the highest and most humbling form of Christian charity. We would do well to imitate it. I'll close this by quoting a bit from myself the last time we cycled through this discourse when a father forgave his son's murderers. We've seen all these um, beats before, and we will see them all again. But as long as they keep coming, I'm going to keep tapping the sign. Any good man can forgive, but it is only the Christian who can explain why. And it is only the Christian who has a place to turn when he must cry out to someone, I forgive, help my unforgiveness. Like Corey Tenboom, when she found she could not in her own power forgive the Nazi prison guard who had tormented her sister. It was then that she turned to a power not her own. She didn't need to feel forgiveness, she realized. She needed only to choose it and trust in God to do the rest. May we never have to choose so terribly. May it never be asked of us to do what Corey Tenboom did, what the Charleston Church did, what Brant Jean and Craig DeWitt have done. Still, May these examples be ours to consider, to marvel at, and in our own small way to follow after. Again, surprisingly little coverage of the Covenant School's mercy to the parents of the shooter who ended the lives of their children and colleagues. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.